from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Marketing Matters on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Marketing Matters here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Barbara Kahn, the Patty and J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing, and I'm joined in our live studio <laughs> by my co-host, Professor Americus Reed, the Whitney M. Young Jr. Professor of Marketing and the Brand Identity Theorist. Hello, Americus. Barbara, the hills are alive with the sound <laughs> of music. Wow. I am. Listen, can I just say, I am so excited to see you in person and to be in the studio. It's been how? I mean, it's what, been like three a, years. Three right? years, right? So right? unbelievable. Yeah. Extremely excited to uh, kick off our first live program in a while. So what have we got? Yeah, this is exciting. So before we get into our guests, and we have a great lineup, tell me, what have you been up to lately? Are there any stories that you're interested in? Well, actually, you know, we have on our program this very, very hot segment, Barbara, <laughs> and it's called Hit or Miss. Hit. Bullseye. Or miss. Just a bit outside. And so what we do on this, I love this, Barbara, because we get to pull the hottest stories that are out there in marketing and talk to our listeners and each other about, you know, is this a hit? Is this a miss? And so I'm going to start with something that I've been seeing a lot. So I'm, I don't know if you are in the market for a new car yet. but Never. I, am, never. I don't want to drive again. <laughs> so I am actually in the market. Uh, very soon. Oh, really? Yes, my car is prob- my jalopy is going to die soon, and I just realized that I have probably purchased my last internal combustion engine Absolutely. automobile it's ever. EVs, right? EVs are hot. Okay, so Tesla. I'm seeing more Teslas. Okay, just around Philadelphia, Barbara. I don't they know. They got if- a little cheaper. I they think. got a little cheaper, right? And so <laughs> yeah. hey, this is hot. Anyway, so. What I want to talk about really quickly is this notion of Tesla, Elon Musk. I talk about him in my class all the time, consumer behavior, marketing school, marketing uh, at, at the Wharton School, and the notion that he's such a big brand. And he himself and Tesla and Tesla, and they're all interrelated. Uh, yeah, you're making them both. Yeah, right? they're separate or they're, well, they're the, they're kind of the same thing, right? They're the the vision, the mission. You've never seen a Tesla ad. He has 80 million followers You've on never Twitter. Seen a There's Tesla? never been a Tesla ad. Huh. It's all word of mouth, Barbara. Wow, that isn't that is amazing? Shocking. Shocking. Yeah. And so, anyway, the the idea is that uh, Elon now has become a uh, part owner of Twitter. You're on. You have way is more. Is he fi- part? I thought he's yeah. on the board. He's, he's on. He actually owns, I believe, nine percent of the company oh, wow. now. Okay, so this is the latest thing, and he's been doing some crazy stuff on there. Uh, and the question is, you know, is this a hit or miss from the perspective, Barbara? Of is this going to resurrect Twitter? Uh, he's talking about, you know, throwing in an edit button, all oh, kinds of like he's going to come in and like rearrange how the the paradigm around free speech, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of my hit or miss for this oh, week. This big God. Tesla news and Elon Musk so more generally. So the Tesla news is actually. Twitter news. Yes, That's exactly. That's the point. That's ah. the point. Exactly. So is Elon Musk yeah. on the board a hit or a miss? Yeah, for the Twitter brand. Now, you use Twitter a lot, Well, right? if Twitter is about just being noteworthy, then it's got to be <laughs> a hit, right? Right, right, it's right. It's got to be a hit because it's going to get people talking about it. Absolutely. And from the word of mouth perspective, just like you said, Barbara, I, I just think this is amazing. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated because the Elon Musk brand, people either love him or hate him. And he's such a powerful, enigmatic, strange, mysterious, visionary figure that people are just fascinated by. And isn't he the world's richest man? He is. I saw that. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, Mr. Musk, please, I need a loan. Please yeah, exactly. uh, give America Street a call. America's is 
calling you a hit. <laughs> I, I, it's a hit, brother, especially if you give me a loan. Let me yeah, tell you. Exactly. But I just this is fascinating stuff because we talk about this all the time, Barbara. Word of mouth marketing, building a brand. All of this stuff yeah, that's huge. Yeah, but will that translate yeah. into more value for Twitter? But if it's all about just talking on Twitter, how could it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So. Well, that's an interesting thing. Well, you know what? We have some guests. Let's start introducing them. We're really lucky today to have with us Suzanne Kapner, who's the reporter. She's the retail reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and she covers retail and fashion industries. So that's her expertise, and that's what she would like to talk to us about today. Hello, Suzanne. Welcome to our show. Hi, Barbara and Americas. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So Americas had his hit or miss, which was Tesla and Twitter. Um, but in your beat, what's the story of the week that you've seen that you think we can talk about as a hit or a miss? Well, I've just been watching this Omega Swatch partnership um, with fascination because to me, initially, partnering with Swatch was not necessarily a an automatic home run for Omega. Omega is a, a very premium high-end brand. Swatch is much lower end. You know, there could be issues with quality that could tarnish the Omega brand. And in fact, we are seeing some of the dye on the Swatch watch has been rubbing off on people's mm. wrists. But oh gosh. Despite all that, <laughs> despite all that, it has been such a huge hit. You have customers, you know, lining up at stores, stampedes, crowds, people can't seem to get enough of this watch. And I think it's such a hit for Omega. It's really going to open up a whole new generation so of wait, customers. So let me them. ask you to unpack a little bit of this. So when you say li lining up at stores, it's the Swatch store, right? Or is it the Omega? Right. Okay. So, it, so it's kind of like Target and Missoni or something like that, where a lower-end retailer is featuring the higher-end. Is that, how, is that the, the way it's going? Similar, yes. And yes, so these absolutely. people who are lining up, do you suspect that they're Omega fans or Swatch fans or what? How mm -hmm. do you, I mean, can you speculate on that or that's hard to tell? I mean, I suspect they are people who would love an Omega watch but can't afford it. So this is their way of getting yes, the, so how do of you the Omega brand. Yeah. At, a, at a much more reasonable price. You know, some of these collaborations that we've seen in the past have been hits, so I, you, I assume you're taking this one as a hit, whereas, this, like you said, the low-end, high-end. Um, you saw Louis Vuitton and Street, you know, get together and those kinds of things, high-end mm -hmm. luxury mm -hmm. go with Street. Um, and as I mentioned, Target was with the Sony that, like, killed the website. It went down in two seconds. But they're not always a huge hit. So you can't say in advance whether or not this is a huge hit. Did you have any intuition when you were talking to people how they knew this was going to be so successful or it was just as risky as any kind of experiment? You know, I I, I don't really, um, I think it was a gamble. You got to sometimes roll the dice and there are no guarantees with these, these lineups. But, um, you know, I do think they, I, to me, it was a risk because with a watch, it's so much about the craftsmanship mm. and, you know, mm -hmm. having, making sure the quality is there. And, you know, for uh, some Omega watches sell for like $200,000. So really? That is a I big didn't know that. Price differential with Swatch. Yeah, what Swatch? Like sixty nine ninety nine or something like that? I mean, it's, uh, 
yeah, it's range, a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a, that is really kind of an interesting kind of concept. And the watch business is absolutely, I mean, it isn't really about, you say they're well-made and stuff, but I, th I would imagine Swatch might tell better time than some of the more expensive. It's not really about telling the time. It's about the craftsmanship of the more expensive watches. I mean, that's what I think was so interesting. You want to tell time, you got an iPhone. Like, what do you need a watch <laughs> for, right? Interesting. So it's really true, more true. about the craftsmanship um, and this combination Yes. So, so it, it, so Suzanne, is this a win for both brands? Because when I think about Swatch, I remember Swatch from my old, like yeah. high school days, yeah. and it was kind of to your point, Suzanne, exactly what you said, at least perceived in my mind as kind of a lower end, you know, not poor quality, but certainly not at that same level uh, as Omega, as you were describing. Is this a bit of a play as well to just start reaching out to kind of these younger consumers? Like, is this a play for to bring them, to bring into, them into the into the Omega brand? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I definitely think it's a play to bring younger consumers into the Omega brand. You know, every luxury brand today is trying to get that accessible, you know, have that accessible luxury uh, cut below their true core end, very high end customer. And you, you want to sort of build the brand, seed it with younger shoppers who will one day hopefully be able to afford to pay up for the real thing. And mm. This is a very smart way to do that. Yeah, but you got to be careful, like with Tiffany and Silver. So you want to protect the high-end consumer and not have too many kind of wannabes running around. Mm. So the idea of making this a special swatch edition of Omega is a way to get them in without threatening perhaps oh, that's the integrity of the yeah. Omega brand. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you mentioned Tiffany because Tiffany did have a partnership with Swatch years ago that oh. did not go well and oh, the, really? the two parties that ended up suing each other and it did oh, not wow. so not it's not it's not always a home run wow that's nice to have somebody who has so much experience <laughs> in the retail world to go back and tell us that so that's really interesting i do think it's a little bit of a risk some of these collaborations yeah. and we've seen a lot of interesting ones like um ulta is now in targets you mm. know and mm -hmm. sephora is partnering with kohl's and so you see a lot of kinds of collaborations between different types of brands with different types of consumer segments um, and whether or not it works as you just mentioned is not a sure thing so let's talk about another collaboration that I know you recently wrote about which is Neiman Marcus which is elite 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 mm, of the department mm -hmm, stores mm -hmm. I like to think of them as like 90% of their business comes from 10% of the richest people in the world <laughs> so they're super high-end um, and as you mentioned luxury is about exclusivity and all those other kinds of things and now they're partnering with Farfetch which is an online platform which mm. makes it more accessible to a bigger audience. So what was your take about that story? Well, the luxury industry has really been a little bit slow to adopt the Internet. And, you know, you're starting to see it happen more now, but they were a little bit late to the game. They were late to the e-commerce game. Neiman Marcus, you know, had a fairly good e-commerce business even before COVID. It was above a third of their sales. But... You know, they just went through a bankruptcy proceeding. Right. They, they, they're much, they're healthier now, but, you know, they, it, they, they found a partner in Farfetch, which aside from their marketplace, they really have technology that is now powering the back end of all these luxury uh -huh. brands. They do it for Chanel. They mm. do it for Harrods. They're in talks with Richemont, which owns Cartier, Chloe, yes. and all these other brands. So one of their specialties is to, power the back end of e-commerce websites and all the clunky things that consumers don't want to know about payments and customer service and distribution and 
for Neiman Marcus, the first thing they're going to do is take the Bergdorf Goodman brand to customers overseas. So Neiman ah. Marcus and Bergdorf Goodman, they are really mostly accessible to the U.S. customers right now. They don't have any stores outside the U.S. And they've had trouble expanding overseas. Neiman had a, a website in China at one point that they ended up scaling back. And it's so so that's the first step, but I think ultimately this partnership will go a lot further and potentially some of the brands that Neiman Marcus and Bergdorf Goodman carry could be available on the Farfetch plat marketplace plat platform. And there could be a lot of collaboration in bringing some of Farfetch's technology to Neiman Marcus's stores at some point down the road. That's a really interesting perspective, the back office and, you know, supply chain issues and all this other stuff is yep. the, really the bane of the retail existence. Let me reintroduce you. I'm Barbara Kahn, along with America's Reed. This is Marketing Matters. And today we're joined by Suzanne Kapner, who's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. She covers retail and fashion industries and the luxury industries. If you'd like to ask Suzanne or any of us a question throughout today's show, please feel free to call in at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So let's just move on because I know you've written a ton of stories <laughs> and I love having you here to talk about them because there's a lot of interesting things that have happened. One of the stories that I can't believe is working because I never heard of this happening before, mm. but you wrote about Birkenstock, which they're using their power, I guess they're a trendy brand now to be able to do this, to pressure retailers to stop selling copycat sandals. I mean, these are copycat, not counterfeit. But in this business of brand and luxury counterfeits, copycat, that's really, I mm. mean, back to America's expertise, threatens brand identity. Yeah, and to be able to call on these retailers to stop doing that, is, isn't that unusual? I mean, what was your reaction to that? Well, it really shows the power of the Birkenstock brand right now. You know, they've been having a, a moment for the last few years where you've seen fashion houses like Celine and Givenchy kind of riffing on the Birkenstock sandal. You know, they're, they're, they're partnering with Manolo Blahnik. They have like a blinged out version with crystal buckles. Mm. You know, these are not your sort of crunchy sandals ah. <laughs> that some of us remember. Yes, that's and, what I was thinking. <laughs> Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> Ah. They, they've become so hugely popular that there are a lot of lookalikes out there. And so Birkenstock has been using its clout with retailers to say, look, if you want access to our shoes, we want you to stop selling shoes that look similar. Mm. And a lot of the retailers, Nordstrom, Zappos, they're, they're getting in line because, you know, they want access to the Birkenstock sandal. Now, from the other side, some of these brands that are getting dropped they feel that, you know, they're not infringing on any copyright right, or trademark. Right. They've been, some of them have been selling these shoes for 40, 50 years. So it's not like they're, you know, just coming out trying to ride Birkenstock hotels now. Mm. And so it's a little bit of a gray area because if you, if you don't have trademark protection, you, you know, it's a free market, right? Right. And, right. and in, in fashion in particular, it's very hard to get, copyright protection. Right. Isn't that what happened with Zara? They were sued left and right and nobody could catch them. You know, they were like copying things right off the catwalk, putting them in the stores. Mm -hmm. People did sue them. They weren't happy with Zara, but it seemed Zara went right on and did it. So right, it is kind right. of amazing yep. that Birkenstock has this. And I think what you're attributing to is not a legal argument, but a power argument. Yeah. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. They're, they're flexing their muscle right now. And, you know, they pulled off of Amazon in 2016 mm. and they're, Starting later this year, they're going to forbid any of their resellers from selling on Amazon's marketplace. So they're just trying to clean up and very much tighten, you know, the, their distribution and make sure if you're buying a, a Birkenstock type sandal that you have to buy the real thing. You know, it's interesting because Nike pulled themselves off of Amazon as well, and Nike now has decided to go direct, which mm -hmm. I don't hear you saying Birkenstock is doing that. Birkenstock is still going through retailers or wholesale, and what they're just doing is exercising their power, whereas Nike, you know, similar kind of thing. They didn't want their resellers selling on Amazon, and they didn't want people undermining the customer experience or selling counterfeit Nikes, and so they decided to control the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, do you, are you seeing more um, luxury brands doing that? Not maybe not Birkenstock, but certainly some other of the luxury brands are doing that approach rather than exercising power within the chain, right? Going direct. Yeah, 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 yeah. This has been sort of a trend that's been happening for several years, mm. where the brands want to control the relationship with right. the customer, and they have less control when they're sold by a third party. They don't control how the brand is presented. How, how it's priced and so you there has been a big push on the part of these brands to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with their customer but I want to build on this though Suzanne because in some senses what do you see as or what have you analyzed as the potential uh, impactful downside of doing this because you talked about the idea of being perceived as a power player bullying this you know perhaps you know uh, vendors that or just, you know, I mean, it's it's that whole idea, Barbara, of, you know, uh, what is it? Um, uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery yeah, kind yeah. of argument, right? It could Where build it's, up the power of their brand that build, so many people are copying Exactly. It. It's a social proof argument here. Yeah. And just also the idea, Suzanne, that, you know, you have these brands and in some senses, this sort of power play, which is characterized as bullying by some, can be seen as limiting consumer choice in some very important way. So, how what how did you what do you what what do you characterize as the big downside of this as something that could like turn into a crisis for Birkenstock if this goes way way sideways? Well, you know, you don't want to limit consumer choice, and I think I think it is a very tricky line that you have to walk because brands have every right to police counterfeits they have every right to police their trademark but it is a free market and mm -hmm. if nobody is infringing on any of your legal rights you don't want you don't really have the right to keep them out of consumers hands yeah, yeah it's yeah. tricky it's a really it's a tricky line. interesting line because yeah. we know how powerful brands are that's well, right well suzanne thank you so much for joining us today and we know you have tons of other stories that we'd love to talk about but we're running out of time so uh we'd love to have you back um and it's really like nice to have some of the history that you have in, in covering these stories for so many years where can our listeners go to keep up with you and everything that you write about for the wall street journal WSJ.com, and I also post my stories on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, so follow me there. Well, thank you very much. It's great to have you on the show. We're going